Hello, welcome to Seeing Saw, the official Spiral podcast. I'm Catherine Bray, film critic and huge Saw fan, and awakening with me in an old psychiatric hospital with one hour to solve a series of puzzles and save their wives, who do we have here? It's Anna Bogutska. I'm a writer, occasional film critic, co-founder of the feminist horror film collective The Final Girls and the president of the Stromy Army fan club. I'm Charlie Shackleton. I'm a documentary filmmaker, occasional film critic and in the opposing corner, Major Hoffmaniac. Happy to see his final appearance here in Saw 3D. Now, today's film might have been called Saw, the final chapter, but even more chapters have been added to the bloody tome that is the Sawniverse. Spiral from the Book of Saw, a brand new Saw film, stars Chris Rock, Max Minghella, Samuel L. Jackson and Marisol Nichols, and it's out on May 14th, or if you're in the UK, that's May the 17th. But in this episode, it's the turn of the seventh instalment. Saw, the final chapter, a.k.a. Saw 3D. There will be unorthodox dentistry, there will be fishhooks pulled gorily out of throats, and there will be spoilers. So if you're new to the franchise, we'd suggest not starting with the seventh instalment. Are you crazy? Go back and watch them in order, then have a listen to this ep after you've seen everything up to and including Saw 3D. Just a little bit of homework. I would love it if someone started and watched them all in reverse order. Start with 3D and then go back to the original. Start with Jigsaw. Start with Spiral. Yes. I want to hear from someone starting with Spiral and working their way in reverse chronology through the Sawniverse. Making a whole other podcast about that. So anyway, Saw 3D. Anna, what's the deal? What's happening with Saw 3D? Well, Catherine, it's in 3D. <laughs> That's sure the is. big news. It's in the title. It's in one of the titles. We talked a little bit about the 3D mania in horror films and the trend in cinema in general in the last episode. But this is the first 3D installment and the only one so far of the Saw franchise. But the really interesting thing about it is that there was plans to shoot a seventh and an eighth film together. That changed mid-production. Also, the director of the previous installment, David Hackle, was supposed to direct this one. That also changed at the start of production. And Kevin Greuthard, who had directed Six, returns to direct this one. And he'd also been the long-standing editor of the franchise. And there's a there's another departure in the team. The Saw team is changing up. So the long-standing DP of the series, the director of photography, David Armstrong, also departs. And Brian Gedge replaces him. It's actually his first credit as a director of photography. He's a long-standing camera operator. He's worked on amazing stuff since then, including The Witch, which is extraordinary. But yeah, I think actually, aside from the 3D and bits and saws being thrown at one's face, the most interesting thing about this installment is the marketing. I can't get enough of the poster. Absolutely epic poster for Saw 3D. We haven't talked much about the posters. Do you guys have a favourite poster in the Saw poster canon? Yeah, this one. (laughs) (laughs) What do you like about this? We better describe it because the podcast is not a visual medium. Well, so we've talked in, in past episodes specifically, I think, about the poster of the first film, which confusingly had a severed hand on it, despite the film revolving around a severed leg. I would like to add to this, though, the poster that I saw when this film came out in Spain, actually had a foot and a hand. The first one? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so clearly <laughs> these posters are not scrupulously accurate to the films that they're about. They're doing the hokey-cokey. They're putting the right hand in, the left foot out. <laughs> <laughs> but this poster for Saw 3D takes that theory to absurd new lengths with a 100-foot jigsaw wicker man-type 
structure being constructed in the midst of what looks like a sort of post-apocalyptic future. And there's massive scaffolds, there's workers all around building this enormous jigsaw effigy thing, which personally, I remember when this film came out, at, at which point I still hadn't seen any of the Saw films. Wow. I was like, wow, that franchise has gone to some weird places. It's like Jigsaw Godzilla. <laughs> I would have watched a sort of Mad Max post-apocalypse Saw film where Billy the Puppet is worshipped as a god <gasps> in some kind of post-civilization wasteland. I think that would have been fun. Yes. And also... Even as I said it, I genuinely want to see Jigsaw battle Godzilla in some sort of weird meeting of the franchises. <laughs> well, maybe it will be paid off in a future instalment of the Saw films because they've got form for that. The third film, I think we've got teeth on the poster. Yes. And teeth don't one. really come into it until Saw 3D. We'll come on to that when we talk about Trap. I do love also the poster for Saw 4 where it's Jigsaw's head on a scale. Yes, very, that's very the iconic. autopsy reference, I guess. They yes. would have weighed his brain in the autopsy, not that we see that in the film. We don't, but I think that's one of the ones that best plays into what the films are about because the killing of the main antagonist is a really baller move in three. So the poster for four is, I think, fantastically plays into that. It's great. It's like the poster functions as a little deleted scene or special feature. Or in this case, a massive deleted scene (laughs) (laughs) that would have changed the the arc of the film quite considerably. Release the Jigsaw Wicker Man cut, is that what you're saying? (laughs) And I guess before we gather around to discuss our Jigsaw-related personal trauma in a group therapy session, we'd better do our classic recap from Charlie Shackleton, our plot bot. You weren't prepared for me to call you a plot bot. I mean it in an entirely complimentary way. Thank I you. don't think you did. I did, I promise you. So, somewhat upturning the recent habit of the films opening exactly where the last one left off, Saw 3D opens where the first film left off. Ooh. And we even see a little flashback clip to the end of that first film, the very famous twist with Jigsaw revealed to be in the centre of the room having been playing a corpse. And then we cut to the immediate aftermath with who but Dr Lawrence Gordon, our old friend who we haven't seen for many, many, many films, well, seven, crawling away from the bathroom in the first film and finding a hot pipe and cauterizing his leg on the pipe in order to stem the blood loss. From there, we cut to something perhaps even more startling, the franchise's first ever fully-fledged exterior scene, which you don't really realise until you see it in this film. Like, pretty much the entire franchise up until now, like 10 hours, 14 Mm. hours, whatever it's been, has been indoors, mostly at night, with, I think, maybe tiny little exterior moments, often which look like they were still shot indoors. Also people walking... Walking into cars. Yeah, Yeah. getting into a car. Maybe they're standing in like a car park for five seconds. Here we find a trap playing out broad daylight in an exterior setting, namely a kind of public square where these characters we're introduced to called Brad, Ryan and Dina awake in a trap that's being held in the window of a hardware store, I think. And maybe we'll talk a bit more about the trap later. But we see that play out, not entirely clear when that's happening. And then from there, we cut to where we left off at the end of the last film, Saw 6, with Detective Mark Hoffman having just escaped the reverse bear trap that he'd been put in by Jill Tuck. And he screams and his mouth's all tore open from where he escaped the trap. Jill Tuck sees this unfold. She's just left the room thinking that she's successfully killed him. And she uh, runs away in fear. And she goes to the police 
where she tells them that she's only willing to speak to our new friend, <laughs> Officer Matt Gibson, who everyone will refer to throughout this film as though he's a long-standing character that we meet in this film, Officer Matt Gibson. But we recognise him from Final Destination. He gets one of the best deaths in Final Destination with the old bathroom light wound round the neck and the soap and the feet. That particular death, which is very nice. Nice to see him back in a horror franchise. Yeah, he he sort of has trap form, in fact. (laughs) So Jill tells Officer Matt Gibson that Detective Mark Hoffman is a jigsaw apprentice and responsible for some of these recent traps. And Gibson agrees to take her into police protection. Meanwhile, on the set of daytime talk show, we meet jigsaw victim Bobby Dagan and his entourage, his publicist Nina, his lawyer Suzanne, his best friend Kale, and his wife Joyce. And Bobby Dagan, having survived a jigsaw trap, we're told, is now using his survival to create a sort of self-help empire. He's written a book, he's going on talk shows, he's trying to be an inspirational figure. Meanwhile, Jill has a dream that she's in a trap and dies at the hands of Hoffman. Turns out it's just a dream. But in the real world, a group of neo-Nazis, Evan, Kara, Dan and Jake, really are in a trap, which they fail to escape and are all killed in various gruesome ways, which I'm sure we'll discuss later. At that crime scene, the police find a message has been left for who but our old friend Officer Matt Gibson. (laughs) Everyone's talking about Officer Matt Gibson in this film. Um, And alongside the message is the reverse bear trap that Hoffman escaped, which, of course, is covered in Jill's fingerprints, given that she was the one who put it on his head. Bobby Dagan attends a jigsaw survivors group with a TV camera crew, attempting to leverage his celebrity in that world into uh, more fame for himself. And he receives a sardonic, slow clap from Dr. Lawrence Gordon, who's also at the meeting, and very sceptical of Bobby's attempts to sort of leverage his survival. And it's lovely to see Carrie Elwes back as well. He's some, looking good. Has an age today. Some lovely big acting from the back of the room. Yes. Also, we love Dr. Lawrence Gordon being a troll. <laughs> and he is. <laughs> that night following the meeting, Bobby is kidnapped and wakes up in a cage where a video message from Jigsaw alleges that, in fact, Bobby is a faker. He was never tested by Jigsaw and he's made the whole thing up for fame and fortune. Of course, now that's going to change because he is going to be tested in you guessed it, a series of traps leading to his kidnapped spouse, as is Jigsaw's want. Be careful what you wish for. Mm -hmm. Officer Matt Gibson takes Jill Tuck to a safe house and confronts her about the reverse bear trap covered in her fingerprints. Meanwhile, Detective Mark Hoffman offers via this video message to stop Bobby Dagan's game in exchange for the police handing Jill over to him. But he's uh, rebuffed by Officer Gibson. I can't remember how he's explained his old uh, scar down his face from having half of his face ripped apart by the bear trap. Well, they know he's Jigsaw at this point. They know he's a Jigsaw apprentice at this point. So That's the one, yeah. It doesn't really matter. Surely yeah. at this point he's promoted to something higher up than just an apprentice, right? Yeah, he's essentially the reigning Jigsaw at this point. Jigsaw yeah. emeritus. Exactly. <laughs> I must say, actually, Detective Mark Hoffman is looking fab in this film, I thought. Very chiselled, the kind of grubby look is working well for him. He's lost his page boy haircut from the previous one. Yeah, he's fully embraced his jigsaw persona. He's very cold-blooded, very stern looking. In general, they've really lucked out with the fact that the films are made so quickly over this period of six years that they don't really have to deal with the actors ageing. Mm. Everybody mm. looks sort of pretty spiffy. I think the only... 
uh, thing that I read was they did want to get Eric Knudsen back. He plays the son of Detective Eric Matthews and they couldn't because an actor in their teens does age over that time period and it would put him out of step with everyone else in the franchise. So across Bobby's game, he encounters a series of traps in each of which a member of his entourage is placed in mortal danger. And the traps are all themed around the three wise monkeys, the uh, see no evil. <laughs> they no really e- called the three wise monkeys. Yeah, that's what they're yeah. called. <laughs> That's their real name. I agree. I'm not having that. No, they're not. Yeah, yeah they it's are. a famous thing from Japanese mythology. No, I know that... See I, no evil, hear no evil, speak no I'm evil. I'm very familiar with that, but I didn't realise it was called the Three, three Wise, wise monkeys, monkeys, mate. I mean, those monkeys it. are very wise. I guess they are. Well, this is a great podcast. I'm learning a lot. Yeah. You join us on the uh, Japanese mythology podcast. We're discussing the Saw films. <laughs> and so through these traps, Bobby first has to pull a fish hook from Nina's stomach, his uh, publicist Nina. He has to lift a heavy weight to stop his lawyer Suzanne from being impaled in the eyes and mouth by these spiky pointy things. And he has to guide his best friend Kale across a room with most of the floor missing. And these are all tied in one way or another to the monkeys. In flashback, we see how Bobby garnered his fame and fortune as a fake jigsaw survivor, including publishing a book, at a signing for which he unknowingly met who but John Kramer himself, the jigsaw killer in a backwards baseball cap, it's looking real cool. casual wear. <laughs> it's a lovely casual jigsaw. Also makes me think of Steve Buscemi in the 30 Rock meme. How do you do, fellow kids? Yeah. <laughs> How do you do, fellow serial killers? <laughs> Meanwhile, another video message leads Officer Matt Gibson to the location of Bobby's game, which turns out to be an abandoned psychiatric hospital, once home to a patient who, upon release, threatened Gibson's life, but was killed by Hoffman, saving Gibson, And this set up a kind of tension between them because Hoffman felt that Gibson should have been more appreciative for him saving his life. A SWAT team is killed by a booby trap there at the abandoned hospital. And as Gibson and his team relocate to Hoffman's junkyard workshop after having worked out where that is, they are also killed by a booby trap there. But not before they see that Hoffman has been monitoring the police, having hacked into their surveillance cameras. And they find the corpse of Dan one of the neo-Nazis, which Hoffman has somehow removed from the morgue. In his penultimate test, Bobby must pull out his own wisdom teeth to get the combination to a lock. Don't spend a lot of time with that one. And from there, he moves to his reunion with his wife, Joyce, in which he's forced to confess his deception. because She wasn't in on it. She had no idea that he wasn't a real survivor. Slightly makes you wonder why she's been placed in such a bad position in this old trap. It's a rough deal for her. Because she's going to be basically burnt alive in a big oven if he doesn't now succeed in the trap that he basically invented for himself. It's sort of like one of those fairground claw crane games where you have to hook the toy and get it into the box, but he has to hook himself through his pectoral muscles and hoist himself up to where he can connect these two extension cords. I wish he was on the end of a gigantic mechanical claw like a fairground. <laughs> that would have been fun. Anyway, he fails because unfortunately the hooks tear through him and he falls to the ground and his wife Joyce is burned alive. We cut to the morgue and find who but our old friend, pathologist Dr. Adam Hefner. Your oh. fave. My fave. But very sadly, what happens next? He goes to unzip the body bag, presumably to find old neo-Nazi Dan inside to do just a routine autopsy on Dan. Just doing his job? Just do, yeah, Exactly. Just doing his job like he always has. Diligently. <laughs> and what should he find inside? But Detective Mark Hoffman, who immediately stabs him in the throat, killing 
pathologist Dr. Adam Hefner. So, so fun. A moment's silence, <laughs> I think, for our dear departed Adam Hefner. And a moment of not silence to recognise how fun it is that Hoffman pops out like a jack-in-the-box. <laughs> yeah, he goes full stabby-stabby yeah, in for, this next sequence. So from there he proceeds on one of his classic kill rampages, just killing absolutely everyone he comes into contact with, until he eventually finds Jill, and fittingly he puts her in the reverse bear trap that she put him in. Again, gives her no real chance of escape. And finally, after seven films of teasing, we get to see the reverse bear trap actually go off, and it's pretty grim. The bear trapper has become the trappee. But as Hoffman leaves the police station, he himself is kidnapped by a group of the old pig faces, the leader of whom is revealed to be Dr. Lawrence Gordon. What? What? who it turns out was slowly rehabilitated by Jigsaw after he cauterized his own leg and himself became an apprentice and was then later given instructions via the tape that we saw Jill deliver to the hospital in an earlier film, instructions from Jigsaw to take revenge if Jill was ever killed by anyone. And of course she was killed by Hoffman, so now he's going to take revenge on Hoffman. And in the final scene, he gives Hoffman the old bathroom treatment, shoves him in the bathroom hooks him up to the wall, and rather than giving him a saw, he throws the saw theatrically straight at the lens (laughs) so that if you were watching this film in 3D in a cinema, it would come flying right at you. If you're watching it on DVD now, it just looks like a saw clattering onto the hallway. So he gives us the saw. And closing the door, he ends with the immortal words, Game over. And the franchise is finished. Or so we thought. So we thought. But it's not. (laughs) Thank goodness. So this was the film aimed at bringing the franchise full circle. If it had been the end, how would you guys have felt about that? Does it do a good job of tying up the ends? If this was the final ever Saw film and that was the final scene, I would have absolutely loved it. I mean, I enjoy that there's more of them, but it does bring everything full circle and it brings it back into connection with that first film. And honestly, after what Lee Whannell told us about his initial idea to bring back Dr. Lawrence Gordon in the third film, it feels even more appropriate to finish off the franchise with him. Yeah, I mean, it ties together things quite nicely. There's some good flashbacks to traps that we see that Dr. Lawrence Gordon actually had a hand in staging, and they're often the ones that involved some sort of medical procedure, popping an old key behind someone's eye or various other bits of grisly business that get done over the last seven films. And that's quite nice because I think that was a common audience question prior to this Mm. point was like, okay, Jigsaw's a structural engineer. How is he doing all this medical work? He was giving references. He recommended Dr. Lynn Denlin for the third film. Yeah, that's lovely. That's very cute. I mean, I was listening to the producer's commentary and they literally combed the message boards to find out what people wanted to know and deliberately built stuff in the tooth trap. That was in there as a response to sort of people going, well, that, you know, there was teeth on the poster for three and then we never got any teeth. So, <laughs> Well, now you get some teeth. Now you get Are some teeth, Are you happy now? Guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a great one in there where in an earlier film, I think it's two, you see in one of Jigsaw's tapes that he gives his victims the medical procedure that's been done. I think it's when the key's been hidden behind the eye and you see this caped figure looming over the victim and putting the key behind the eye. And because this anonymous figure hobbles slightly on the tape, fans had theorised that it was Dr. Lawrence Gordon because of his missing leg. Mm. Apparently, in reality, it was just that the bit part actor they got to play that role just did that 
as like a creepy thing that he would sort of <laughs> hobble a bit in the room. But it provided the impetus for this fan theory, which then is incorporated in here because you see that in flashback. That was Dr. Lawrence Gordon and hence I the whole thing. I love it. Fan service has a bad rep on the internet and it can be used in dreadful ways. But I think the Saw franchise is really good at doing fan service right. They use it in a brilliant way to kind of play out theories or, you know, twist the theories around. But they are paying attention to the theories. And I love mm. that. Yeah. I mean, if you're not watching these films for like pedantic tying up of every loose end and making everything fit together like the world's most complicated Rubik's Cube. I don't know why you're watching them. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you could probably watch this film and still get a lot out of it, even if it was... I mean, I, I think you'd get more out of it if you've seen the other films as well, but they're sort of open to a fresh audience with this one as well. I think stuff like the opening trap that takes place in public for the first time, I think our first big crowd scene that's probably if you've never seen a saw film more like what you imagine the saw films to be it's three good looking young kids trapped in a horrible dilemma with a circular saw coming towards them. i mean it's a love triangle what a great way to kick off the film it's worth saying that trap it's quite a uh, trifling thing for jigsaw to have inserted himself into hmm. normally his victims have committed some major crime or infraction or one that maybe is tied to him in some way. This is like a love triangle concerning some 20-year-olds. Why is this old man getting involved? <laughs> he just <laughs> likes to get involved. He likes to stay contemporary. He likes to stay down with the kids. We've seen him in his baseball cap. It's, <laughs> it's part of that. But I think also the fact that it's in public, maybe that's him trying something new there, because there is this idea of Jigsaw's celebrity is very mm. to the fore in this film. It's right at the heart of the theme with the fake self-help book guy, this idea that you shouldn't be trying to trade off Jigsaw's presumably massive fame by this point. Hmm. Also, we say it, it's Jigsaw, but of course it may be a Hoffman trap. The precise location of this trap within the chronology of the films is never really made clear. Yeah. No, it's not really clear. It does feel much more like a Hoffman trap, to be honest. Mm. You could easily write in some backstory where one of the guys used to date Hoffman's sister and maybe dumped her, or there's some sort of Hoffman bugbear in there as well. <laughs> or maybe, maybe the girl is the daughter of a girl who dumped him in high school, some sort of contentious relationship like that. Exactly. Something like that. Probably going on. Now, because this is a film that sort of deals with Jigsaw's fame and saw in the wider public eye, I thought it might actually be interesting to talk about the critics because we haven't talked about that much so far in the Saw franchise. And I've actually devised a little game. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. We've got a whole other Jigsaw apprentice on our hands. You have. You have. So the premise of the game, I'm going to read you a quote, something that somebody wrote about a Saw film. And you have to guess which Saw film this quote from a critic's review is referencing. Excellent. Okay, so this first quote. Perhaps you enjoyed seven. This goes up to eight. <laughs> That's lovely. I would say it's got to be the first one. What's our rationale for that? That after the first one, it became impossible to compare these films to anything but themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and also because the first film is not model, but definitely inspired by David Fincher 7. That is correct. Next up, this would make a Good co-feature with Michael Moore's Sicko. Ooh. Well, I mean, I've seen that film. It's a documentary about the healthcare industry. So I think the answer is clear. It has to be six, right? It is. You're two for two. You guys are too good. Next up, boasting more posthumous recordings than Tupac. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good. Four. That's where the tape comes out of the stomach. That is correct. You're good at this. Mm. 
thank you for engaging with me in this game. You did incredibly well. Now, something else I want to talk about in relation to Saw 3D, which the franchise does for the first time, is taking us outside of strict reality. So we get our first dream sequence. What do we make mm, of that? I'm not sure about it. You're not sure about it? No, Saw is a grounded franchise. One of the things I love most about this franchise is that it never went into the realm of the supernatural, that we always knew Jigsaw himself wasn't going to come back, even though he died so early on in the franchise. And I know dreams aren't supernatural, but <laughs> I do feel like they're approaching that direction. The thing that I'm going to say in its favour is that is an awfully good prosthetic they have of Jill Tuck getting quartered. You see a, the quarters fling back and there's like a exposed breast on one. It's quite horrible. They sort of ping off in all directions. I think it's a nice little throwback to the fate of Marty Adams in Saw 4. Yeah, mm. but I also think Jill needed... Um, it kind of taps into her fears. A Hoffman dream sequence, though, I would have really welcomed. Because I want to know what's going on underneath this perfectly chiseled little head. Lots of murders, I think. Just kill crazy yeah, rampages. Just, just stabbing everyone. <laughs> His whole dream would just be him running around stabbing people in the neck. Yeah, if you were going to do a Freudian analysis of the Saw franchise, he's very much the id. <laughs> so you guys are probably right behind the decision to cut the scene that they originally had in there where Bobby Dagan on the chat show talking through his supposed escapade with the Jigsaw killer, they actually shot a version of that where we see that unfold in a Rashomon-like scene with his lies playing out on screen but it's all shot in a very sort of like different style so you kind of would have known that maybe this is something this guy is making up as he's going along did they shoot it it's did... on the dvd yeah oh, you have a look. i'll be steering well clear <laughs> <laughs> it's fun as a curio because already there's the scene where during the survivors meeting which we should talk about because i think that's a, a great scene but there's a moment where a survivor we've never met before alludes to her trap and we see like a tiny little mm. glimpse flashback of it without any of the context about what exactly they were meant to do or what the stakes were. I mean, we see them dangling over these engines, so it's pretty clear what the stakes are, but already that's in uncomfortable territory for me. I think if we're doing a trap, we have to do it properly. We can't have little little fleeting glimpses. Yeah, because the criticism, I guess, from people who aren't fans of Saw would be that, oh, you're just watching people be pulled apart in inventive ways. And to that, I would say, no, absolutely not. It's about the logic of it, and we need to know what the puzzle or the mm. stakes and the terms of the trap are and we don't get that as you say with the glimpses of like different victims traps that... yeah so actually including those little glimpses especially when they're not true when they never actually really happened especially because the true pleasure of the survivors meeting is seeing all our old favorites back in the yeah. room all our old friends are back from previous Simone traps love it the pound of flesh girl is back to mm. howard the winner of scream queens she's still not happy about having to have cut her own arm off <laughs> no and fair enough Fair enough. Yeah, I wouldn't be. Dr. Lawrence Gordon is there in the background. One of the things I like about that is that, of course, you realise in-universe, Dr. Lawrence Gordon wouldn't be like a particularly significant jigsaw victim. His trap, the bathroom trap, in a world where the pendulum trap exists, mm. would just be a kind of low-key jigsaw trap. Obviously, it's very significant to us because it's the trap from Saw and he's the protagonist of the first film. But it's fun to see him just sidelined. Like, I think Bobby Dagan even says, oh, he's just some guy. He's been here even longer than I have. <laughs> yeah, but he's the original. But you can get that resentment in Carrie Ellis' performance as well. He was like, I was here before all of you were trapped. I was the OG trapee. 
Yeah, and he's also, to be fair to him, he has the distinction of having been in the frame as a possible jigsaw killer. He's mm. probably the only one of these victims who was arrested as maybe jigsaw, which, at, as it turns out, they were right on the money. <laughs> he had that in him all the time. <laughs> it's also a very different looking saw film, obviously because of 3D. When you shoot in 3D, you need to really brighten up the image. I'm talking like I'm a cinematographer. This is obviously all stuff I've just read about 3D filming technique but it means that they have to really shift from that classic saw green murky Mm. rust palette how do we feel about the new and brighter look of saw 3d i want to go back into the darkness (laughs) the darkness in her soul is drawing her (laughs) back into classic saw aesthetics it's fun to see the opening trap be out in public and on display in that way obviously it begs a few uh questions about exactly how this public jigsaw trap was set up with no one witnessing it but i do miss the green Mm. i miss that pure deep dark green now before we get into the traps of saw 3d we're very happy to have an interview with the guys who decided to open the book of saw in the first place producers oren coolers and mark berg took a chance in the early 2000s and funded a little film called saw and now 17 years later their baby is still going i sat down with them to talk about saw's origin story and its future I am so excited to be here today with the guys without whom the Saw franchise, as we know and love it, quite simply would not exist. It's Oren Coolers and Mark Berg, the producers of Saw. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Hi, I'm Mark Berg, Oren's partner. Hi, Oren Coolers. And together we've uh, produced every Saw picture with the help of Dan Hefner and originally Greg Hoffman since 2003. When we we actually produced the first one and it came out in 2004. So I think in film culture, the role of a producer is still not always fully understood. But with the Saw franchise, you guys are really the point of creative continuity, even more so than any of the directors. Even someone like Darren and Bowsman with now four films to his name or Kevin Groita with his two directorial credits and, you know, editing them throughout but it's you guys. You're the ones who are there throughout the whole thing. You are the sorters, the sorters, if you will. <laughs> you must feel really proud of that. Yeah, it's uh, you know when we set out to make Saw, who knew that 17 years later we'd still be producing movies in the Saw franchise? And uh, there have been a few people. There's been Orrin and myself, our producer on set daily. Dan Hefner's been there since the beginning. And it's probably the only franchise in history that's had the same studio executive from the very beginning, Jason Constantine. So there have been a couple of people throughout. And Kevin Greutert has edited every Saw movie and came in to help out on the last movie just to advice and uh, on Spiral. And Oren, of course, lay on the floor with a key in his stomach way back when, a little bit more involved than maybe most producers would normally get? Well, it's a much longer story, but Mark and I uh, had previously made a movie that was really successful named John Q with Denzel Washington. And the first time we got a statement, the accounting showed that we owed more money than the movie even cost. So Mark was very frustrated and said, let's go do uh, one or two small movies a year. We'll put up our own money. We'll own them. And in 10 years, we'll have 15, 20 movies. And that'll be our exit package. And the point was just sell our library and call it a day. And the first movie we uh, used our money for was Saw. So back to one of your things you talked about, a producer role for us. I think we've put up the money. 
We've been there for every story meeting. We've been there for you know almost everything we could do. In a time like today, there'll probably be 50 emails between publicity, between different marketing, between putting a 20-foot pig on top of Diamond Supply, a clothing store. This is what we've done. Can, can I just add one thing to your question? In Saw 1, when Oren was laying on the ground in that scene, the reason he laid on the ground was we couldn't afford an actor for that day. Mm. Right? We, we made Saw 1 with so little money that every penny was accounted for. And we were like, wait a second, we need a SAG actor who's going to cost $1,000 for the day. I think Oren was like, screw it. I'll lay on the ground. I'll do it. Let's save the money. I was like, done. <laughs> and, and by the way, Shawnee Smith was so sick during that. It's such a testament to her. And the funny thing is, years later, we started using a head trap for promotional things in a couple of different movies. And we decided to make a replica just in case. Well, the replica weighs like a few pounds. The one that Shawnee put on her head for a day of filming weighs like 20 pounds. I never realized it. And one day, Dan Hafner handed it to me. He said, you should have this. So it's the only piece of memorabilia I have, but it weighs so much. It was made by James and Lee back when they were in Melbourne and they made it out of steel and, you know, glued bits of like a gauge on the side. It was a school project, but they built it out of steel. And now obviously the one we have that we've used in different bits and pieces and movies is out of aluminum and weighs about uh, 20% as much. Did you end up getting Shawnee's chiropractor bill? No, she, I'm telling you, she was gray when she shot that day, the, the day she did the uh, me on the floor. She, I'm telling you, she was gray. But we were at 18 days. We couldn't afford to lose a day. So she was a total trooper and plowed through it. I'd love to ask you to cast your minds back to Saw Year Zero. There's these two Australian 20-somethings. They're not long out of film school. I'm imagining you're in the Twisted Pictures offices and they've what? They've sent you a tape of their short. You like it. You want to meet them. Well, they were flying over to take meetings, but mostly for development. Someone to buy their script and give them some money and tell them to rewrite. I don't really think, you know, according to James and Lee, I mean, Mark can tell you our meeting. I don't really believe that they thought they were going to be handed a a greenlit movie when they came into our office. They they came into our (laughs) office. They had landed two hours prior. They checked into the Hyatt on Sunset, a less expensive hotel. They took a cab because there were no Ubers back then to our office. We're looking at these kids that don't look older than 20. I think they were 24, 25 at the time, but they look like serious young kids. Neither one of them looked old enough to shave. We're like, okay, so you want to star in the movie and you wrote it. You want to direct it and you helped with the writing. And we looked at each other and we're like, if you guys can do this for a million dollars, your movie's greenlit right now. And they they both kind of looked at each other like they were in shock. They then went back to their agents and the agents were like, whoa, 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 we have so-and-so who wants to buy your script for $200,000. It was a company called Gold Circle that did the, my big fat Greek wedding. And they're like, you know, we're, we'll develop the script and we're not sure, you know, about who's going to direct it, but it's, we'll pay you. And I think they actually upped their offer to two fifty for the script. And James and Lee decided that they take no money or scale at the time, which was a hell of a lot less, and go with us because we guaranteed them they'd be in production as quickly as they could. And I think literally six weeks later, two months later, we were actually filming. And it, I think it took two months and it would have been six weeks because James and Lee had to go out of the country to come back in to get work permits. 
And when James left the country, they then wouldn't allow him back into the country for a couple of weeks. He's a Malaysian birth and Aussie citizen. And for whatever reason, even in 2003, that knocked the customs out of whack. So he literally prepped the movie. He was in a hotel room in Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada. So he's in a hotel room in Canada and he was prepping. But it wasn't like it is now where you can FaceTime. We were sending these little tiny clips or pictures over the email of a shot of a, this is what the bathroom is going to look like. And casting. We cast the whole movie. With him in Canada. With him him not even here. But it wasn't like it is now where we can do this. In 2003, we couldn't do any of this. It's kind of the ultimate dream. I mean, it must have felt like they were on a hidden camera prank show or something when you're like, we're going to make your movie, followed by the ultimate nightmare. It's your first film, but you don't really get to prep it. Well, Lee was here. And Lee and James obviously made the short together. And they're very simpatico. Lee got right back in. So Lee would talk to James hours a day. So the good news is at least James had, not that he couldn't trust us, but at least he had Lee, who he spent so much time with, and shot the short and wrote it together. So they really are partners. I mean, they, they, they did that movie together. I mean, James directed it, but it wasn't a decision that Lee was not part of. And after the film comes out and is such a success, you're then on this in tense cycle for years of delivering a new Saw film in time for every Halloween. If it were me, I think I would still be waking up in like September and October and PTSD trauma flashbacks thinking I have to deliver a film to Lionsgate. The truth of the matter is we never actually took any movie for granted that it was going to work. So the very first time we would think about the sequel would be the day after the movie was released. So the movie would come out Halloween. That Monday, Orrin and myself would sit down with somebody from Lionsgate and go, okay, guess what? It worked. Let's talk about a sequel. Sometimes there was one movie we didn't really, our our partner, Greg Hoffman, passed away. And we didn't have our first script meeting until Sundance in January. We started shooting in May, and this was Saw 3, and the movie came out in October. But, I mean, it was insane. I mean, Lee actually, who wasn't really going to, jumped into the screenwriting of this because we literally had no time. I mean, we were going day to day. It was like January 20th. We hadn't even started. We had an idea, but that was it. I mean, Dan Hefner was prepping a movie based on... Without a script. Yeah. Without a script, he was prepping a Saw movie the same way he would be doing a Saw movie, like Saw 2 and Saw 1. But he was doing without, so he he couldn't build any of the traps. He couldn't build anything. And I love that you have this ensemble of creatives that, by and large, keep coming back, and heads of department get to direct. I think that's wonderful. Almost feels like repertory theater collective approach. David Hackle was our production designer, starting in two. You know, Saw One was shot in L.A. in a warehouse. Starting in two, we've shot in Toronto. So David Hackle. Kevin Greuter is one of the only constants. So Kevin Greuter would, you know, even in like this last one where he wasn't involved, he flew up for like a week, 10 days to Toronto just to help us clean some things up. David Hackle probably came by three or four times we had, and I know Dan used him extensively. David was in the middle of directing a movie, but he would pop by and just give us tidbits of advice. So this is what I would do. I mean, eight movies later. For him. I love Hackle's work. Stuff like bringing his kid's idea into Saw 5. Just fantastic. Yeah. And Darren, I guess, to do three films and then come back for Spiral. Did you guys feel like that was quite a coup, getting him back? Because he's a bit of a fan favorite. 
<laughs> yeah, listen, Darren. He's like your we, little brother. <laughs> Darren's like our our kid brother. We we love him. He's complicated. He's a really really good shooter, and we thought we had a really great script. So once we had the script worked out with Chris Rock and our writers, we kind of like, okay, who are we going to get to direct this? And we we met a couple of the young hot directors that Hollywood was talking about. And then Darren called us up saying, what about me? And we're like, you know something? He directed three of our favorite movies. We got in a room with him and Chris. They were talking eye to eye and Orrin and myself were like, okay, we got our director. You know, politically in this country with what's going on with the police, I think we actually also make a statement about, you know, if you're going to be a cop and you choose to be a police officer, do it the right way. Well, it's interesting because when we shot this in 19, it was before a lot of what's going on right now in the States here. And it's interesting because we're getting feedbacks from different, not only reviewers, but people are going to see it to for interviews. And so many people have brought up the police angle and what's going on currently in the United States. But we shot this in 19. It wasn't a hot button. I mean, right now it's the front page of everything every single day. Well, I think Saul has always had that mistrust of police officers, which is great. Yeah, I mean, we've all, so, you know, the Saw films have always questioned authority, whether it be insurance people in Saw, was it six? Mm-hmm. There's always been a collective mistrust of the man. It even goes back to when Mark and I made John Q. It was a script that Mark developed before we were partners. And it was Denzel Washington having his kid not being accepted into an emergency room because he didn't have the right insurance, even though Denzel thought he paid for it. We've always kind of liked those stories. I loved when Six went there and just went after the US health system. I guess people will know with Spiral as well going in that like, if you're casting Chris Rock as a police officer, you're going to have something to say about that. Chris Rock is not known for representing the man. No, but you know, this was Chris's idea. He came to us with the idea I had no idea, Arne had no idea that, that he was a, a Saw super fan. And he actually ran into Michael Burns, vice chairman of Lionsgate, at a friend's wedding and started talking to him. Michael came back from the wedding and said, you guys need to sit down with Chris Rock. He wants to do a Saw movie. And Arne and myself both looked at each other and were kind of like, huh? Chris Rock? Saw? We met with him and literally he just could not be more effusive in talking about his take on it. And he kind of likened it to 48 Hours. Eddie Murphy is one of his first movies where it was violent. It was gory. There was action. And every now and then, there'd be a one-liner that would make you laugh. And that was what we tried to replicate. Something we've been enjoying doing on the Seeing Saw podcast is debating the traps. Imagine on a Saw podcast, we're talking about the traps, yes. It's groundbreaking stuff. We're doing this as a kind of winner stays on tournament. So we're picking the best from a given film. And then next episode, it faces off against the best trap in the next film. Can I walk you through the tournament so far? And we'll see if you agree with our decisions. So in Saw 1, the bathroom wins our first round, but that then loses in Saw 2 to the razor hand box, which we love. That in turn then loses to the pig vat, but the pig vat manages to stay on against the hair chair trap in Saw 4. The hair chair trap then loses to the glass coffin, which then succumbed one episode later to the pound of flesh trap in Saw 6. So the pound of flesh trap currently is the one to beat. 
We have a favorite. I mean, my favorite you did mention. My favorite is the simplest one we've ever done and to us is the needle trap. See, I love the needle trap. Um, we debated that round and round for ages. I think for us, it's the logic of that trap. We preferred the logic of the razor box because it was clear that you could win that trap. Mm-hmm. You could stick your hand in from above. You could have got around that one. One of my favorites is Dina Meyer's trap, the acid trap. Yeah, with the angel. That one's great. They're all different. They're all, they're kind of like your kids. You know, you love them all for different reasons. <laughs> you just waited a okay. okay. How about that? Yeah, I mean, acid has good form in the Saw franchise. I love the hydrofluoric acid injected into the health insurance guy. That's, that's yeah, a fun yeah. moment. That's a good one. Yeah. Twisty Tim is a good one. I mean, they're all, we all have uh, moments of, of, of each. Pound of flesh trap going into our next round of Jigsaw's trap race. Would you argue for that to stay on against any of the traps from Saw 3D? I mean, it's a good trap. So many of them are personal preference. I mean, certain things make people squeam that don't make other people squeam. So it's like definitely a front runner and should hang in there for a while. (laughs) Fantastic. Thanks, guys. I'm going to move us on to Jigsaw's trap race so we can start digging into these traps in detail. So far on trap race, the bathroom trap from the first film lost to the razor box hand trap from the second film, which then faced off against the pig vat and the pig vat won the day before going on to triumph again in episode four against the hair chair trap. A shameful era. (laughs) (laughs) The pig vat was then taken down by the mighty glass coffin, a tough contender, but the glass coffin was taken out in turn by a new entry from Saw 6, as we've just mentioned, the pound of flesh trap. So Saw 7, we've got absolutely loads of traps to look at in Saw 7, but maybe some of them are the kind where we can just miss them out of hand because they're probably not going to be trap race winners. We've got obviously the public execution trap that we've just started to talk about there. There's the pain train, as they call it on the Saw (laughs) wiki, which is the dream with Jill Tuck getting chopped in four. There's the horsepower trap with the neo-Nazis in a garage, an interconnected trap of some scale. There's the lawnmower trap. That's one of the victim memory traps that we've been talking about. And then within Bobby's trial, you've got the suspended cage, which, again, I think that's more of an entree, a mousse-bouche type of trap rather than something that is a potential contender. There's the silent circle. That could be a contender. The fishhook stuff is nasty. There's the impalement wheel with the eyes, which I think has a nice 3D moment with the spikes coming towards you. There's the hangman's noose with sort of blindfolded walk above certain death. There's the wisdom tooth combination, which we've talked about a little bit already, that pays off the Saw 3 poster. And there's the brazen bull, which is the wife cooking oven. There's also a couple of booby traps, the sentry gun trap and the cyanide box. I don't think that we're going to go for either of those. And then finally probably is a contender, the reverse bear trap. Finally getting to see that pay off after seven films. Successful reverse bear trap. Core. Core. The film's only 90 minutes long. It's traps, 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 traps. Absolutely thick with traps. I think we can, speaking for myself at least, I think we can immediately lose the traps that don't actually take place. Absolutely. (laughs) The dream traps. The dream trap and the trap that we only get a brief little glimpse of in a flashback. Yeah, the lone mower trap. I think we can lose that. Yeah, we can lose that. Okay, consensus on losing the dream traps and the... The pain train. The pain train and the partially glimpsed victim traps. So I think maybe we could talk about the first two major traps together because they're both sort of public to a degree. I mean, Mm. one is public in that it's surrounded by people. The other one 
again, takes place outdoors at a tire yard or something. And they contain multiple victims who mm. were sort of locked in place and whose fates depend on one another. But there are also polar opposites in terms of like the opening trap in the window of the hardware store is perhaps Jigsaw's least progressive trap, <laughs> given that it centers on this dreadful woman who has <laughs> been having an affair. And then the next one is perhaps his most progressive trap in that the neo-Nazis are being punished just for that reason alone. And in fact, he snarls on the tape, you and your friends are all racists, <laughs> which is just a, a nice, simple jigsaw assessment for once. It's not like, oh, you lived next door to me and once I heard you ripping off a car salesman and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like just a straightforward character flaw being justly punished. And he's got his classic bit of wordplay about race and skin and gluing the neo-Nazi skin to a car seat. And I think I always like it when there's a thematic through line oh, yeah. in a jigsaw trap. The problem for me with the Nazi trap is that the manner of death that awaits the four Nazis is very complicated and pleasingly Baroque. But the actual thing that the main one has to do to avert their deaths is just like reach forward and pull a lever. And I know it will like tear his skin off or whatever, but I don't know. It's just a bit bland. He was going to survive originally. He's played by Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park. Um, R.I.P., yeah. Who had to make it back, I think, to L.A. in time and they ran out of time and in the end it was like, oh, well, he can't survive because we run out of time with Chester. <laughs> Wait, wouldn't it take less time to survive? Because they wouldn't have to fling him through the window and pull the other bloke's face off. He was supposed to be on the floor, like, moaning afterwards, after going through the window. Ah. I mean, it would have been great to see his character learn from that experience, completely turn his back on all his Nazi ways, and be featured in that group survivor's therapy session. He could have had some personal growth. It would have been nice, yeah. yeah. Okay, so what do we think of the three wise monkey traps? Any particular faves in there that you think could be contenders? Oh, I absolutely love the silent circle. The because, fish hook. Yes. Mm. Not just be okay, I'll say why. Because first of all, I love the fact that it's tailored to the victim's profession because she's a publicist and she <laughs> well tells a lot of partial truths and untruths as part of her day-to-day -day job. And I love that Jigsaw tailoring the traps to the professions of his victims. And also because she is savable. She is savable. And our friend Bobby does really, really try. But it just doesn't work out that way. But you can see a simple, albeit painful, way of getting out of that trap. For me, that's the one problem with it is like, I really felt like she should have survived that. She just they did a real good shut. job together. For anyone who needs a refresher, basically, she has to keep quiet. Otherwise, these spikes, they're on sound sensors mm -hmm. and these spikes are going to dig into her throat. So she has to keep silent while Bobby pulls a fish hook out of her stomach through her mouth. And it's all very gory and gruesome. And you can understand why she'd want to make some noise. You can understand. But also, I love that bit of acting from Sean Patrick Flannery in this scene where he's just, just shut up, just shut up, just shut up. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Just calm down. Calm it's very down. family vacation. You've got lost and can't find a petrol station kind of vibes. I like this one. I think it's my favourite of the three wise monkeys linked traps. The blindfold one is fun, but it sort of maybe isn't classically sore for me, the idea that you might fall down. It reminds me of that kid's show Nightmare, 
or a crystal maze type thing. I think we're in more mm-hmm. in that kind of zone. And then the one with the impalement and the eyes. My only beef with this one is why is it coming for her throat as well? And also the throat spike is on the same vertical axis as the eye spikes. I think by the time it's gone kind of two inches into your eyes, the throat one is still sort of barely touching the back of your throat. So it's slightly weird trap to me. It feels like the throat one shouldn't be there. It should just be eye focused. So for me, that one with a slight conceptual tweak could have been great. What about Bobby's trap that he's brought upon himself? He does put hooks through his pectoral muscles. Yeah, but you know, he also lied and made a fortune based on a lie and then he's getting taught a lesson. Okay, so he gets some ripped pecs. Fine, whatever. He also gets what I presume is just a really, really great like core workout as he tries to <laughs> solve that trap. And I bet knowing him, this guy is going to then go on and actually write the book for real. Oh, what yes. a follow-up. He's going to be on that redemption circuit that people do of getting caught out in a massive public line. Then they do the book about how they've learned from their ways. Yeah. He's going to do that and like, I, he's going to get famous all over again. I survived Jigsaw again this time for real. The reverse bear <laughs> trap finally paid off. Oh. Uh, what do we think? What a relief. Just a relief? No more than a relief? The catharsis. No, I mean, it's great, obviously, to see that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that being uh, the inside of Jill Tuck's face. <laughs> yeah, with a big flappy tongue in the middle. It looks mad in a very pleasing way. It looks like in Beetlejuice when Gina Davis is trying to spook oh, it people. it really does, yes. yeah. It also looks like those vampires in Blade 2 as well. (laughs) I have to say my favourite thing about that whole sequence is, I mean, you talked on a previous episode about the fact that Detective Hoffman doesn't really flinch ever. He's a real one for like walking away from an explosion, just very very sturdily. Terminator guy. In this scene, though, perhaps acknowledging quite how gruesome the sight of the post-reverse bear trap Jill is, he averts his eyes like he's witnessed a private moment that he shouldn't have witnessed. It's like if you saw someone grieving at a funeral, you sort of avert your eyes to be polite. But what he's seen is like a big pink mess. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it is great that they did manage to pay off the bear trap. I Mm. I would give it lots of points for that. And again, if this was designed to be the final entry into the Sonoverse, what a great way to finish it off, right? Yeah, absolutely. Start to finish. All about the bear traps. So what are we saying? For Saw 7, Saw 3D, Saw, the final chapter, the winning trap. For me, it's the old uh, speak no evil, got to stay quiet while the fish hook gets pulled out of your stomach ruse. The old fish hooks. (laughs) The silent circle. Uh, Same for you, Anna? Yes. I love that trap. You know, after seven films of these traps, it's quite something to come up with one that feels genuinely refreshing and different than any of the previous. Yeah, you might be talking me around. I was going to say Bear Trap just for the iconography and the fact that it's been such a consistent trap throughout the series that we then get that payoff. But, Mm. I mean, you're right, there's just something so nasty about the fish hook and when he pulls the fish hook out of the throat and there's all this little stuff that looks a bit like chicken livers or something Mm. like that on the end of it, really (laughs) disgusting. Um, Nice to see Jigsaw using a bit of more modern kit as well with the LED sound sensors. I I thought you meant fish hooks. I was like, those have been around for a while. (laughs) And also, to be honest, the reverse bird trap, although it is very satisfying to finally see it in action, it's not really a trap per se because there's no way out. It feels much more like an execution. Yeah, no, you've sold me. You've sold me on the old fish hooks. So fish hooks versus our previous winner, the pound of flesh trap from six what are we saying there because i mean they're both nasty they're both 
escapable. One is an oppositional trap, the pound of flesh. It's who can cut off the most flesh in order to trip the scale and survive. And fishhooks is collaborative. It's Bobby trying to save his publicist. I think for me, the pound of flesh is still just so strong, so disgusting. Such a great performance from Tanidra Howard. Pure saw. Pure saw. And I think they just, they've thought it through from every angle. Like you say, it's oppositional. It's a very sparse setup. Everything's bolted down. You can't really do anything except sacrifice a part of yourself. It's just, it's classic saw. I'd have to agree. Pound of flesh it is for me too. I think we have to wrap up there. Pound of flesh, the winner of Jigsaw's Trap Race. So, Charlie, what have we got to look forward to next when we'll be chatting about Jigsaw, 2017's Jigsaw? Well, it's a whole new approach to the Saw franchise. And by that, I mean a new aspect ratio. (laughs) (laughs) Anna, anything other than the aspect ratio that you're looking forward to talking about for Jigsaw? Oh, I'm looking forward to a laser that can cut through bone and flesh like butter. If you're also a survivor of Jigsaw and made it through these films and are excited to play yet another game, then you are in luck. Spiral from the Book of Saw is out on May 14th or the 17th if you're like us and live in the UK. Thanks so much for listening and please remember to rate, review and only write a self-help book about surviving one of Jigsaw's games if you really have survived one of Jigsaw's games. Seeing Saw is a Little Dot Studios production for Lionsgate. The show is hosted by Catherine Bray, Anna Bogutskaya and Charlie Shackleton. It is produced by Jake Cunningham and Harold McShield with production support by Ellie Aitken. And we're edited by Content is Queen. <gasps> What's this scar under my eye? <laughs> Anna, I think we're caught in Catherine's trivia trap. Again? Is there a new dimension to Catherine's trivia trap? Catherine's 3D trivia trap. (laughs) Yes, guys, are you ready for some 3D trivia? The trivia itself actually isn't 3D, but anyway. Saw 3D features 25 gallons of blood. That's about 113 litres. I was trying to visualise how much that actually is, so I went on to an energy-saving website. (laughs) The average dishwasher uses 15 litres of water to complete a wash cycle, so you could do about seven and a half dishwasher cycles using all the blood from Saw 3D. Put it another way, you could flush the toilet 12 and a half times, or if you have an energy-saving toilet, (laughs) you could flush the toilet 18 times using all the blood from Saw 3D. (laughs) 